The text for this morning's sermon is Genesis 1, verse 3 through 25, which we have just read. After the sermon, we will respond by singing Psalm 102, stanzas 9, 10, and 11. This morning's sermon was prepared by Rev. Peter Holtvloer, minister in the Spring Creek Canadian Reformed Church in Tintern, Ontario. Today, we move on from the initial creation of the universe in its unformed state to the further creative activity of God. God has created a wonderful thing in the heavens and the earth. Do we not often stand back in amazement at what we behold in creation, even still now after sin has corrupted it? Think of the glorious sunsets we see so often, magnificent to behold. Every now and then we are treated to a spectacular view of the northern lights, and such sights make us exclaim, wow, what beauty. Add to that the fields of golden wheat, the waters rushing through Moline Canyon, or the gentle meandering flow of the North Saskatchewan River, and we often have cause to reflect on the wonder of creation. But let's not stop there, for the wonder of creation must lead us to stand in awe of the Creator. As we have it in our text, the revelation of God's creative work tells the story not so much of creation's splendor, though that is there too, but also of the Creator's wisdom and majesty and power. I proclaim to you this word of God. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. We see the magnificent method, mysterious manner, and marvelous wonder. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. Our text begins with a simple command. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It immediately shows God's absolute power and control. God voices his will, and no sooner has he done so than the thing he commands takes place. The thing he willed to happen happens instantly, without hesitation. Let there be light, and there was light. But we may ask, why light? It is God's first act after making the unformed mass of the earth, so why light? In fact, why not finish off the earth in one mighty creative act? Let the earth and the heavens be completed in perfection. Did God have to create the earth and all therein in stages? We must immediately answer no to that question. For the same God who could create the basic mass of the earth in an instant, and the same God who can call light into existence, could also quite easily have called the finished product into existence. He could have made it straight away, with all the plants, trees, creatures, and man in place. Lack of ability is not an issue for the Creator. Instead, we read over and over again in our text, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. God, in his wisdom, deliberately chose to create the world in six days. Now, before we go further, we need to say something about these days. There's been a lot of talk about them, maybe a little too much talk. It's helpful to know that up until the 19th century, there was very little disagreement over the meaning of these days. Most everyone understood them to be days of the same length as we know them today, 
with a sunrise and a sunset, a morning and an evening. Serious dispute only arose when philosophy and science combined in the 19th century to question the historical accuracy of the Bible in general and Genesis in particular. The real push came when Charles Darwin proposed the theory of evolution, which states that all of life developed by chance from a microscopic amoeba over the course of billions of years. This is where the philosophy comes in. For Darwinism, or evolutionism, is not hard fact, but theory that starts with the premise that God does not exist. Even today, the Big Bang Theory remains just that, a theory with unprovable tenets. You see, evolution is just as much a matter of belief and faith as creation is. In our day, even in Reformed circles, there are serious-minded Christians who don't want to deny God's existence, but yet see in Genesis 1 the possibility to include some of the processes of, of evolution. Some of them look at Genesis 1 not as a literal historical account, but as a literary poetic account. The close parallels between the first group of three, three days and the second group of three days make them think it's fictional, not factual, a device God used to let us know he is responsible for creation in general. They see it as a story which gives us the basic gist of God's creative work but not the precise details. Genesis 1 does not teach any chronology of creation, they say. Thus, the six days mentioned in the text could be metaphorical for six ages or periods of time. Such an interpretation would allow for the long periods of time required for the development of the world as supposedly discovered by evolutionary scientists and geologists. It's important to understand that the pressures of science have led some to reevaluate the long-standing exegesis of Genesis 1, and that should already raise red flags in our mind. The scientific theories of man must never guide the understanding of the Bible, but just the other way around. Science is man's quest for knowledge, a fallible quest whose theories are constantly being revised. But the Bible is God's revelation of knowledge, an infallible fountain of truth that cannot be altered. Brothers and sisters, if you simply and honestly read Genesis 1, whether in Hebrew or in plain English, what is unmistakable is its straight talk. This is not fanciful poetry and metaphor. This is not symbolism or allegory, but a simple, even sober explanation of what God did in creating the heavens and the earth. When a child reads Genesis 1 and hears the constant refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, what does that child think? He thinks of a regular average day, and that's precisely what it means. There is no indication anywhere in Genesis 1 or 2 or following that the days of creation are anything other than days of ordinary length. In fact, this truth is even emphasized by Moses when he takes the time to spell out that each day had an evening and a morning. What more could Moses have said to make it clear that the length of these days was the same as the days Israel knew and which we still know today? Later, the Lord himself reinforces this understanding in the fourth commandment, as we hear it every Sunday morning. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If the days of creation are not six literal days, then God's own given reason for setting aside the seventh day as the day of rest falls apart. The parallel would be meaningless. So the only simple conclusion we can come to is this. God created the heavens and the earth in the span of six days of ordinary length. Not five days, not eight days, but six days. And look at the order of his work within these six days. First, we have light. Light is one of the most fundamental requirements for life on this earth. It gives off heat. With its unique properties, light serves to provide a basic necessity for all of life. Here we can see a pattern developing. The Lord God begins with the very foundation and works his way to the pinnacle of creation. From an empty and desolate heavens and earth that could not in that condition sustain life, God moves forward, adding elements and arranging the elements so that finally life can survive. First plant life, then animal life, and in the end the last thing God creates is human life the only creature in his own image, and thus the highest life form in all his creation. But in order for man to live and function, he needs all that came before him. So there is a building and a gathering momentum in God's work. From the creation of light and the alternation between light and darkness, the Lord moves to separate and distinguish the sky from the earth. That's what is meant in verse 6. Let there be an expanse to separate water from water. Clouds would hold water in the sky, and oceans would hold water on the earth. That's harmony and structure. On the third day, the waters of the earth are then gathered into one place so that dry land can appear. You can see God preparing the earth as ha- for habitation for life. There's a leading up to something. For on that day, dry ground, dry land appears, also appears vegetation grass and flowers, seed-bearing plants, and fruit-bearing trees. And who will eat the fruit or make use of the plants and the grass? Is it not the animals and man which God creates on day six? It's good to remember too, especially in the springtime. The planting of the field is part of God's creation setup. Farming, just as every legitimate occupation, is a religious endeavor, for you are participating in God's handiwork. We'll speak more about man's role next time, the Lord willing, but when you are sitting on your tractor for hour after hour cultivating and disking and hopefully planting your fields, remember that you are doing the Lord's work too. And for those of us who merely observe the planting process, let us not take it for granted that the plants will grow or that the grocery stores will be filled without interruption. Nothing happens automatically or of its own power. Wheat doesn't grow naturally as the world says. Wheat grows by divine power. God created the seed-bearing plants, and God upholds their ability to reproduce by his providence. If God were to ever hold back the blessing of growth, we would be in an instant famine. Remember Joseph in Egypt. God displays a magnificent method in his creative process. 
Do you see its wisdom and its internal harmony? I'd like you also to notice how the six creation days follow a distinct pattern. You can see two parallel groups of three. On day one, God creates light, and on day four, he creates the light bearers, sun, moon, and stars. On day two, God separates earth from sky, waters below from waters above, and on day five, God fills the sky with birds and the oceans with fish. On day three, God causes land to appear and brings forth vegetation, plants, and trees, and on day six, God creates the land animals and finally man himself. Everything corresponds with each other. There is a perfect symmetry in God's stunning creation. And why should this wonderful pattern be unhistorical? Why can't literary parallels be a description of factual parallels? As if God can't be both symmetrical and historical. Brothers and sisters, if God has the wisdom and the power to create something out of nothing, what is to prevent him from arranging his work in distinct parallels and to model for us the beauty of symmetry? Our God is abundantly wise and powerful, and he shows us also that he is a God of order, not chaos. Things fit together in creation because God made them fit. Things click together because God made them click. You know, that's really the basis of all scientific investigation. Ironically, many scientists see the order in creation as evidence that God does not exist, but it's actually proof that he does, isn't it? Why should biology or geology or mathematics or any of the sciences actually work unless there is a great designer who gave everything its place and station, who established order in all of creation? God has a plan and a timetable for his creation. That's something we also need to learn again and again. Sometimes we want God to work a little faster, don't we? We have a problem in our life where we see such misery in the world and we can think, Lord, why don't you put an end to it now? Why don't you send your son on the clouds? Life is not always easy, as we sing, sang in Psalm 102, verse 3. While I lie awake in sorrow, I am like a lonely sparrow. Perching on the housetop high, like the pelican am I, and the owl in desolation. Life can grind a person down. And in it all, we are naturally impatient people who often want immediate resolution to situations. But our Creator does not work on our schedule. He works on His own schedule, and we need to entrust ourselves into His hands. Life may seem to be out of control, but God remains firmly in control. All may appear to be lost and without hope, but God knows exactly what is happening and how it will turn out. Just look at creation round about you. Our God is a planner who has a purpose for everything. That's what the psalmist did in Psalm 102. In the midst of his adversity, he looked around himself and through creation found comfort in the Creator as we will sing in stanza 11. Like a cloak thy whole creation, from the skies to earth's foundation, thou dost change, it fades away, but thou art the same for a. Lord, the children of thy servants, all the line of their descendants, shall in safety dwell before thee, for thy steadfast love adore thee. From creation, 
he reflected on the one who made it all and concluded that all is well in the hands of this God. We can and must give ourselves over to our unfathomable God. The Mysterious Manner For let's not pretend that we know all there is to know about God. Our text lays bare certain mysteries about God. We see that in the manner of his creative work. Moses writes very simply, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Can you understand that, brothers and sisters? Does it not boggle the mind? Everything man does or makes, he does or makes with existing materials. If children wish to make a tower, they will get out their Lego blocks and build one. If men wish to make a tower, they will get out their rebar, their concrete trucks, their cranes, and all sorts of other tools and build one. If someone wishes to write a book or paint a picture, they take pen or brush in hand along with ink and dyes. If your mother wants to bake a cake, then she takes the pan in the cupboard, mixes in the flour, sugar, cocoa powder, and all the other ingredients, puts it in the oven, and the cake is made. But no one can simply say, let there be a building, and from out of nowhere, from no existing substance, a building suddenly comes into existence. We can't do that. We can't even grasp that. And yet, that's God's way. Let there be light. There is a mysterious, incomprehensible power at work in God, beloved. Isn't that a comforting thing? Imagine that we could understand God's working, God's power. Imagine that his manner of creating was familiar to us. Wouldn't that make us equal with God? If we could figure God out, so to speak, if we could analyze all his powers and abilities like we dissect things in biology class, would we not have a very small God? A limited God? Such a God would be no more able to help us than we are able to help ourselves in this life of sorrow. But our God is not comprehensible. Rejoice, beloved, that we can't figure God out for his mysterious power, for in it he is able to do far more than we ever can imagine. All he has to do is will it, and it comes to pass. It's good to remember that when we deal with difficult situations. I think now of people we know, people we love who do not believe in God, who do not have faith in Christ, maybe even people who have left the path like we've all seen from time to time. This can be especially tough on the office bearers. We want these people to see who God really is, to join us in worshiping him. But no matter how hard we try to explain it, no matter how passionate we are in trying to convince them of it, they hold themselves back. We get nowhere. It's easy then to feel deflated, discouraged, or even hopeless. How will I ever get through to him? What else can I do? It seems like mission impossible. But not so for the God who calls things which are not into existence. We may never get through, but God's mighty word can smash through the hardest heart, can melt the toughest core, and create inside that person a new heart. He did it for you, didn't he? Don't give up hope, but pray all the more fervently for a breakthrough of God's word. 
For God's word at creation is much more than the vocalized sound going forth from God's mouth. Remember what John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and through him all things were made. When we see God speaking in Genesis 1, we must understand that the Father spoke his will through his Son, and then the Spirit brought things into existence. This same Son, who today is the Lord Jesus Christ, was then the Father's mode or vehicle to command all of creation into existence. This word has inherent power, and it is this word which we proclaim through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's another amazing parallel here too. Father and Son sent out the Spirit in the beginning to watch over and energize creation, to make it happen, you could say. At Pentecost, the Father and Son sent the Spirit out again to watch over and energize the new creation in Christ, to make it happen. The Word of God is busy creating once again, creating a new people out of an old fallen word, world. Take hope, brothers and sisters. The God who made light pierce the darkness of a formless world has also pierced the darkness of this sinful world and is taking us to the day when that darkness will be no more. For maybe you noticed another mystery in these creative acts. Light is created on the first day, but the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. This seems very strange, even impossible at first, and many people cite this as a reason for disbelieving the historicity of Genesis 1. We know that our light comes from the sun, so how can light exist on the first day but yet without the sun? But is it, is it really impossible for a God who creates something from nothing to have a different source of light than the sun, moon, and stars for a time? Could God not have an alternate source of light and then simply create new light sources to mark off times and seasons? Can we not see in the separation of light from light bearers something of the marvelous wonder of God's work? I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Revelation 22. You know, it's amazing how much the end of the Bible resembles the beginning. I'd like you to look at verse 4 where the situation in the New Jerusalem on the new heaven and earth is described. Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see that? There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. God himself will be the source of light. Man has always thought highly of the sun. Science today tells us that without the sun's light and heat, life on this earth would not be possible. We all love it when the sun comes out to warm up the air and the earth, don't we? The farmers count on it for, for their crops. Corn and wheat need so many light hours and heat units in order to grow to maturity, right? The sun has long been hailed as the basic staple of life, so much so that many ancient cultures worshipped the sun. 
think of the Egyptians and their sun god, Ra. But God, in his word, subtly but unmistakably tells us that the sun is merely a servant, a temporary holder of the light. First, he created light, then days later, the sun. The sun is not the be-all, end-all. God is the be-all, end-all. And when the time for the sun's service is completed, God's own light will shine upon us for eternity. Do we not have an amazing creator? You can see his unique creative genius in all of creation. Many of you love to work in your gardens and some will work the fields or the greenhouses. Make sure you stop a minute and smell the flowers. Look them over and see their intricate and delicate design, their multivariegated varieties and patterns, their many shades of colors. And have you ever noticed that no matter how different the plant colors, they never clash with each other? Even after thousands of years of investigating this present creation, we are still wonderstruck at how it all fits and works together. Won't we then also be wonderstruck at the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth? Sometimes we get a little concerned, a little anxious about how that new life is going to be. Will the things that we love here be present there also? Will the things we love doing here be part of life there? Especially those who have lost spouses to death, knowing that there is no marriage in the next life can be very unsettling. But here too we have every reason to trust our Creator Father. Has He let us down with the first creation? Even in its broken state, we often have much joy and satisfaction. How much more, then, in the new creation? If this present earth makes our jaw drop in reverent wonder, will the next earth not do even more so? If God has given the beautiful gift of marriage in this life, do you think he can't give something still more beautiful in the next life, something we aren't even capable of imagining today? If God gave his one and only Son to redeem this world and make a new start, Do you think the new earth will pale in comparison to the present earth in any respect? God, our creator, is wise, and his works are already marvelous beyond our comprehension. Wait, then, for the new creation with a firm hope and eager expectation. You won't be disappointed. Amen.